I bought each of you a gym membership, okay? Yeah? Anybody get excited about that? Some of you? I bought you a gym membership. I gave you a weekly workout routine, and I even hired you a physical trainer. What kind of shape would you be in? Well, that depends on a few things, right? It would depend on a few things. Are you using the membership, right? Are you practicing the workout routine, the weekly workout routine? Are you using the physical trainer? Are you putting forth the effort? See, to simply think that I could have a gym membership, a weekly workout routine, and a physical trainer and assume that I was going to be in shape, that would be ridiculous, right? If I wasn't putting forth the effort, but how often do we do that with our faith? See, we have the membership. We're saved by grace. We have the weekly workout routines in the forms of teachings and sermons. We have the physical trainer or the helper in the Holy Spirit. But are we using these things? Are we putting forth the effort? And are we working out our faith? Are we walking out our faith? Is this just something that we know, or is this something that we do? See, Jesus, we're going to see that he works out his faith. He doesn't just say these things in the Sermon on the Mount. He lives out the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 8. The title of this message is, The Sermon on the Mount Works. See, Jesus just spent... Um, three chapters teaching us uh, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and how to apply our faith. And we have some hard sayings in there, right? Love your enemy. Do charitable deeds in secret. Fasting, praying. He's speaking about all these different things, but he's speaking about them. Now we're going to see Jesus live out what he was speaking about. In these next two chapters... Uh, We'll just be in verses 1 to 13 today. But in these next two chapters, how Matthew kind of wrote his gospel, he focuses on this big section of teachings from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we're going to see the works of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus doing some miracles, doing some healings, um, some of the practical application of the very things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Jesus. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would uh, learn from you, Jesus, the way that you lived out what you taught, God, that we would have faith that looked like something, faith that would be alive, that would inspire others. Jesus, so I pray that you would fill us with your spirit now, Teach us, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, so teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. So, if you look back, the last thing Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 7, if you look at verse 24, he says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, Jesus sums up the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whoever hears all these things that I just taught and does them will be like a wise man. 
What's wisdom in the Bible? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Everybody here wants to be wise, right? We don't want to just be knowledgeable. We want to be wise. We want to apply what we're learning. We want to do what we're learning. And this is the exhortation that Jesus has to us here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. See, James says it like this in James chapter 2, verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without works is dead also. See, Jesus desires us to walk out our faith. And he shows us how to do it. He doesn't just tell us how to do it. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I had the privilege of, of starting off the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, in verse 2, it says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Remember, we talked about how this was uh, interesting how Matthew noted that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, why? Because Jesus didn't just teach with his mouth, he taught with the way that he lived his life. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in Matthew chapter 8. He's going to teach us, not just with his words, but in the way he lives out the Sermon on the Mount. Real quick, I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. Pastor Adam ended on this, but I think it's just important as a segue into what we see Jesus do here in Matthew chapter 8. It says, well, if you look at the end of verse 28, it says that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What was different about the way Jesus taught? He had authority. He had moral authority. He had authority in the sense that he spoke the word of God as if he wrote it, because he did. But he had moral authority in the sense that he applied, he lived out what he preached. And this is the first of eight points. I do a lot of points. I'm sorry, I just do, I don't know. I actually cut two out in the parking lot before we got here, because <laughs> my wife is like, 10 is way too many. You have to cut it down to at least eight. I'm like, I don't know which ones to pick. So I picked two. We'll still talk about them. <laughs> I just won't make the point. Okay. Point number one. Genuine faith has moral authority. Genuine faith has moral authority. He taught them with his life and not just with his mouth. In Matthew chapter 23, um, there's this whole chapter that Jesus is just rebuking the Pharisees. It's called the Pharisee woes. And he tells the disciples, do what they say, but not what they do. Do what they say, because the things that they're speaking to you are true, but don't follow their example. Do what they say, not what they do. This was the difference between the way Jesus taught having authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. They taught without authority because they didn't do what they said they were going to do. Jesus tells us to be, uh, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16 because of the same thing. The doctrine of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. They're saying some of the right things, and we know some of their doctrines off, but they're not living out what they're preaching. Jesus is a man that lives out exactly what he's teaching. So we have to be people that do the same, that we practice this genuineness of faith by walking in 
moral authority. We're not just hearing things. We're not just learning things. But we're doing things and we're setting the example of faith by the way we work out or live out our faith. See, Jesus expects us to be doers of the word. If we aren't doers of the word, then can we really call Jesus our Lord? If we call him our Lord, then the result of that should be obedience, right? He's not our suggester. It's not like Jesus is like, hey, this is a good idea. Try out the Sermon on the Mount. It's a good suggestion. No, that's not what Jesus, we call Jesus Lord, right? We all say, praise the Lord. Jesus is my Lord. If he's my Lord, then my reasonable response to his lordship should be obedience. It should be walking in moral authority, just as Jesus does here. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. We see all these multitudes following Jesus. Remember, he sat down with his disciples in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now we see some other people likely made it up the mountain uh, somewhere during his teaching. And now great multitudes are following, following him down the mountain. And this is interesting because we're going to see Jesus do something immediately after he taught the word of God, but I want to look at one thing. These people followed Jesus. Why? Because he had moral authority. He practiced what he preached. If we establish moral authority in our lives, if we're not just hearers, but we're doers of the word, people are going to follow us. People are going to follow our faith. Our faith will inspire others to walk out their faith. It's Pastor Adam starting the work day yesterday. He's teaching the Word of God. He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, hey, hey guys, you want to come out and work with me and help the church look a little nicer? Who wants to do that? I know some people were busy. But Pastor Adam didn't just say, hey, you guys, um, you go work around the church on Saturday and, you know, I'll see you next Sunday. Let me know how it went. No, Pastor Adam, he sets this thing up. We have this nice men's breakfast and he leads by example. He has moral authority, and it inspires others to follow in his footsteps, right? We see it there. Moral authority established, and people follow him. See, when others see the genuineness of your faith, they will see the reality of your God. When they see you walk out your faith with moral authority, they're going to see that your God is true, that Jesus truly is Lord. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is Christ is in me, then the practical outworking of him being in me is go, me go, walking out my faith. It's going to look like me establishing moral authority. And when I walk out my faith, it's going to inspire others, like I said, to walk out their faith. See, the application of our faith can turn into someone else's hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, it's interesting because we could preach the word all day long, and we should. Jesus tells us, preach the word. It's the great commission, right? But we don't just preach the word with our mouth. 
or with our lips we preach the word with our lives. Uh, when I first got saved, um, I was so passionate and zealous about learning about the Bible and sharing the Word of God. And I'm talking to my mom and my dad about the Bible all the time. My dad's like, he's a scientist. And he's like, uh, yeah, whatever, yada, yada, yada. I hear this stuff, but I also know who you are. And who I was was um, shameful at the very least. But the Lord transformed me, and it took about two years of me following the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength for my dad to finally look and see that there was something different. I wasn't just communicating this with my lips. I was living it out with my life. And two years later, my dad, I remember this. My mom called me one day. She said, yeah, I had a conversation with your dad. He came up to me and he says, how could we not believe this? Look at him. Look at him. And that's the reality of what happens when we walk out our faith. It inspires others to follow Jesus. My parents now, they go do mission trips everywhere. They're like so zealous about the work of the Lord. They love Jesus. And that's the Lord working in their life, but the Lord got to use me as an example for them to see, hey, look, he's doing this. He's not just saying it. And if we choose to establish moral authority in our lives, we can rest assured, just as this multitude followed Jesus, that people will follow us as we follow Christ. Picking it up in verse 2, it says, And behold, a leper came and worshipped him. Right off the bat, Jesus encounters this leper. So in the Talmud, which is basically a commentary of the Mishnah and the uh, Torah, five books of Moses. Um, the only thing worse than being a leper was being dead, literally. The, the, the thing next to being a leper was death. So if you were a leper, you were as good as dead to the people. To God's people, if you were a leper, you're as good as dead. They had leper colonies set up where you couldn't be a part of the people. You had to live with the other lepers. You couldn't come within 150 feet of a person that wasn't a leper. If you did, you had to scream out, unclean, unclean. Imagine if you had to do that every time you came into close proximity with someone. Unclean, unclean, they can't be anywhere near you. Imagine the loneliness of this leper. Lonely, right? His own people want nothing to do with them. But he recognizes for some reason that there's one person that might want something to do with them. And he comes to Jesus and worships him. He worships Jesus in the midst of his trial. I would call leprosy a trial, wouldn't you? That's a pretty trying circumstance. That's a sickness that's ultimately going to lead to death. You're excommunicated from the people. And this leper chooses to worship Jesus in the midst of his trial. And this is the second point. Genuine faith looks like worshiping God through trial. Genuine faith looks like worshiping God through trial. Kiana, you're so good. But look at this. The leper worships Jesus before Jesus even did anything. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. And the leper worships Jesus, Jesus simply for who he, he, who, who he was. 
It wasn't that Jesus had done a miracle in front of him or anything at this point. He's simply worshiping Jesus for who he is, for who his character was. See, this leper might have been thinking, you know, this is not the path that I would have chosen for myself, but it's the path that God chose for me. And I'm going to choose to worship God regardless of how trying this path may be. Do you worship God through the trials? Do you choose to worship God simply for who he is and not even for what he's done? Do we worship God for his character or just simply what he's done or what he will do or with an expectation that he's going to do something? Or will we worship him in the trial before he does anything? Because that's what we see in the Word. We see that with Job, right? In Job chapter 1, he's got everything taken away from him, and he chooses to worship God despite the trial. We see it in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas. They're beaten, they're scourged, they're thrown into prison, and what do they do? They worship the Lord. They weren't worshiping the Lord for what he was going to do. They didn't know what he was going to do. They worshiped the Lord for who he was. And after they worshiped the Lord, the Lord responded. The Lord responds to our worship. And he says in verse 2, that second part, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, the leper, he doesn't question Jesus' ability. He questions his willingness. For some reason, somehow, some way, he had this idea that Jesus Uh, Maybe he's God, he's powerful, I'm astonished at his teaching, he has moral authority, but he doesn't question his ability, he knows he's able to do it, he questions his willingness. I know you're able to do this, but are you willing to do this? And look what Jesus says in verse 3, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus was willing. See, Jesus just walked up or climbed up the sermon on, climbed up to um, this mountain. He preached this sermon, probably expended a lot of energy. It takes a lot of energy to prepare a sermon and communicate it. Right, Pastor Adam? Yes, right? So he expended a lot of energy, but now he's going to climb back down this mountain and he's going to heal this leper. Why? Because he's willing. He's willing to heal the leper. This is the third point. Genuine faith starts with a willing heart. Genuine faith starts with a willing heart. Jesus was willing to take time out of his day to spend spend talking to and healing this leper. He was, again, practicing what he preached. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Then he says, Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. What's the way? Jesus is the way. The way that he lived is the difficult way. He did a lot of things that maybe he wouldn't have wanted to do had the father not told him to do those specific things. 
Is healing the leper one of those things? I'm not sure. But he says he's willing to heal the leper and immediately it happened. Jesus was probably tired. But he was willing to do the difficult thing. He was willing to receive direction from the Father and submit to it. We see him do this later in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. You can write this down. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's in anguish. So much anguish that blood is coming out of his forehead. And why is he in anguish? It's not the cross that he fears. It's the reality and the recognition that he's going to be separated from the Father for a moment in time, something that had not happened throughout all of history. And in this moment, he's going to be separated from the Father. He doesn't want to do that. Him and the Father are one. And he says, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, your willingness to let go of your will will lead you to finding God's will. Jesus was willing to let go of what he desired in that moment. He wanted to be in perfect communion with the Father. And he knew the cost of the cross. He knew for that moment, as Jesus bore the weight of the sin of the world, as he took on the curse that he'd be separated, he didn't want to do it. Not that he didn't want to do the cross, he didn't want the separation from the Father, but he was willing to let go and walk in what God had for him. Jesus was willing to walk in the will of the Father. He said, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only do what my Father tells me to do. So the Father obviously told Jesus to heal this leper, and that's why Jesus was willing to heal the leper. That's why he did heal the leper. He says, I am willing, be cleansed. See, Jesus, he reaches out to this leper. He does a charitable deed. He doesn't just tell us to do charitable deeds. He does them. He doesn't just tell us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He does that. He showed his faith by his works. What if Jesus, imagine this. Imagine if we read in the text that after the leper said, are you willing? If Jesus was like, I'm able, but I'm not willing I don't really feel like it. I don't really want to heal you. I mean, I just spoke about loving your neighbor. I just spoke about doing charitable deeds. But I'm not willing. I'm able to. I could, but I don't want to. Be a different story, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't just say, go in peace and have faith in God. No, he does something about it. He takes care of that person who was in need. He doesn't just talk about it. He does something about it. And he told the leper, be cleansed. He touched him. See, as a rabbi, touching the leper would have made Jesus unclean. And often he's referred to as a rabbi, as a teacher. And he is that, but he's much more than that, right? As God, he reverses the effect and makes the leper clean. See, no one was able to touch a leper and be deemed clean. But Jesus is God. And he reverses the effect of the the leprosy and he heals this leper. Healing is the result of being touched by Jesus. That's what happens. This man's touched by Jesus and he's healed. Now we can be touched by Jesus in many ways. It could be through prayer. It could be through worship. It could be through the word. 
And Jesus heals in many ways. We see that in Scripture. Sometimes he might tell you to put mud in your eyes. Who knows? But we know that healing comes from being touched by Jesus whichever way he chooses to provide that healing. But I want to key on something real quick. See, he says, be cleansed. Immediately the man was cleansed. The leper was healed. But being cleansed isn't just for a moment. It's a lifestyle. See, so often we want to be touched by Jesus. We want to be healed by Jesus. But we don't want to walk in healing. We don't want to be cleansed. We don't want to walk in purity, if you will. He deems us clean right there in that moment. He heals us. He cleanses us. And then what happens? We start getting ourselves dirty again, right? We start adding this dirt and this filth and all these different things. And Jesus, he doesn't just desire us for that moment to immediately be cleansed. He decides us to be cleansed, to continue to walk in purity. He's willing to heal you, but he desires you to live a life of purity. Verse 4 says, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone why. Um, likely because it wasn't Jesus' hour. He says, so often you hear him say it in John chapter 2 and several other areas of Scripture, John 7. He says, it's not my hour yet. What hour is he talking about? He's talking about when he's handed over um, to the chief priest uh, and the soldiers. He's speaking of his crucifixion specifically. See, he's kind of trying to fly under the radar a little bit so he doesn't get too much unwanted attention because he knows the more attention he's going to get, the people are going to come after him and deliver him, and he's going to be crucified. So that's probably the reason that he's telling this leper not to tell anyone. We know in Mark's account that this leper was a disobedient leper, and he went and told everyone, okay? So didn't get it completely. Um, he got the healing, but he needs uh, some, some work in obedience, that's for sure. Jesus tells him, don't, go, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. See, the priest, they would have to perform uh, different sacrifices and ceremonies to kind of solidify this cleansing, okay, this healing. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 14, and it's really interesting because in Leviticus chapter 14, the process that a priest would have to walk through to um, solidify this cleansing, to solidify this healing, points to the gospel. Let's read it really quick. Uh, Leviticus chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, what is that implying? That the leper is excommunicated, right? The leper is an outcast of the community. So the priest has to go outside of the camp. We're the leper, okay? We're the outcast. Look at this. It says, and indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take, to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds. Now look at this. Cedar wood, scarlet, in hyssop, 
Cedarwood speaks of the cross. Scarlet speaks of the blood. Hyssop speaks of the uh, bush that they used. Remember um, Passover, when they took the blood of the Passover lamb and the Israelites would put the cross on the door so that the angel of death would pass over. They used hyssop there. Hyssop was also the sponge-like thing that um, was given to Jesus when he said, I thirst, and they put the wine in it and put it in his mouth. It speaks of sacrifice, okay? There's a lot to this. I'm just going to briefly go over it, but it's really cool. Look what happens. So you got these two birds, and it says in verse 5, and the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. Okay, earthen vessel speaks of the body. Okay, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Okay, so Jesus was an earthen vessel. He came as an earthen vessel and he was sacrificed. Okay, the running water, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. All right, so look what happens and I'll explain a little further. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dip them and the living bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. One bird dies and the other bird is set free, sprinkled with the blood of the other one. It's a picture of the cross. Jesus came as an earthen vessel. He died so that we could be free. Okay, and there's a lot of symbolism there, but this is, what, this is what Jesus is telling this leper. He's saying, go to the high priest and tell him to perform the ceremony. Why? He's trying to point him to the gospel. He's trying to give them a little light bulb. Hey, this is going to happen a couple years from now. And when it happens, I hope you remember this leper and the ceremony that you did on him, performed on him, and you remember the gospel. This didn't just speak of cleansing a leper. This spoke of cleansing the world of sins. We're all the leper, but we're also that sparrow, that bird that was set free because of the one that was killed in the earthen vessel. And there's a lot to this. We don't have time to go into all of it. Um, but it's pretty cool. He's getting this message of the gospel across to the high priest. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Okay, a centurion, um, they led anywhere from 80 to 1,000 men. Okay, uh, not always just 100. Be anywhere from 80 to 1,000 men. That was considered a centurion. They're a, a Roman military leader, okay? Rome is um, the world power at this time, right? So they have a huge army. This is one of the great leaders of this army. See, Romans, though, they were considered enemies of the Jews, right? Israel is occupied by Rome. So the Jews don't really like the Romans. That's why you had these zealots that were um, established and you got Simon the Zealot, who was one of the disciples, and basically what they would do is they'd have these little knives, and when they'd see Roman soldiers in secret, they'd stab them and kill them. Um, so the Jews, they hated the Romans because the Romans are occupying uh, Israel. They're occupying the land of God. So look what's happening here. Lepers, forgot to mention this, uh, lepers, if someone had leprosy, it was believed that they were being judged by God, that God like hated them 
or something. They got leprosy because they did something wrong. So they were believed to be enemies of God. The centurion, this Roman soldier, is believed to be an enemy of God's people. Look what Jesus is doing here. He's going to heal a leper, then he's going to heal this centurion's servant. Why? Because Jesus just told us, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Now he's going to show us. He's going to display it. The leper, everybody believes, enemy of God, judged by God. That's God's enemy. Roman centurion, that's the enemy of God's people. And Jesus is going to flip the script and show us what it means to love our enemy. But the centurion, it's interesting. He pleads with him saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now the centurion is likely very wealthy, has many connections. You're a leader of an army of a world power. You got connections. You got some wealth. So likely this centurion was out of options. And he's going to Jesus because he's tried everything else. He's dependent on Jesus. And this is the fourth point. Genuine faith is dependent on Jesus. Genuine faith is dependent on Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in the beginning of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Remember that poor in spirit, it's synonymous with humility. And that is what this centurion is, is uh, displaying here, this humility. He's dependent on Jesus. He's tried everything out. This servant is, is, is dear to him, is dear to his heart. He wants this servant to be made well, and nothing else has worked. He's out of options. So he goes to the one option that's left. But why is it that we do this? Follow me. Why is it that we have to expend every other option that we have before we go to Jesus? So often we do this, right? Centurion had wealth. He had means. But none of that would work for this servant. It wouldn't work. But we do this. We try all these other options. We try to do things in our own strength, in our flesh. Until we get to that point, Jesus, I need you, right? I did this in workout the other day. Um, we did this thing called body pump. I was with like Pastor Chad and his family. And this thing called body pump, it's like <laughs> light weights and it's this girl and she's like a character. She makes all these funny faces. Um, I wish I had a video of her. You guys would be cracking up. But okay, so this body pump thing, you do like 100 reps of like so many different exercises. You do like bench press and you do squats and you do lunges and it's go, 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 go for an hour straight, nonstop. And I thought I was in pretty good shape. Um, and I was like, oh, body pump. It's like this little 130 pound girl. Like, we'll be good, be fine. This will be fun. And I'm kind of like laughing about it, making jokes about it. About 10 minutes into this thing, I thought I was gonna die. Literally, I thought I was going to die. I almost threw up. I never throw up. I was like, you got to be kidding me, 10 minutes in, and I'm crying out my heart, Jesus, I, I, I need you. Lord, I need you to get through. I, I'm going to die. There's no way I'm quitting, because if I quit, they're all going to make fun of me. So I have to continue on for the next 50 minutes, but I need Jesus to get through this workout. But we do this in different uh, aspects of our life. We, 
We have to get to the point where we feel like we're going to die before we cry out to Jesus. But it shouldn't be so. Remember what he says in John chapter 15, verse 5, for without me you can do nothing. We've got to start there. We can't underestimate the trial. Don't wait for the trial to come to depend on Jesus. Start from a place of dependence. We've got to recognize we can't do anything without him. I'm not even trying the workout. I did. I did it again today. I was running on the treadmill, and I was trying to hit this certain time, and I'm like, in the beginning, I'm like, oh, I'm just running, and then I started picking up the pace, picking up the pace, picking up the pace. And then I like cranked it up, and I was like, I got to get it by this time, and I'm like, Lord, help me, help me, help me. So I'm learning my lesson here, okay? It's taking time, but we need to start in this place of dependence. Jesus keeps reminding me of this. Without me, you can do nothing, not even a run on a treadmill. Matthew chapter 8, verse 7, he says, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. This is the fifth point. Genuine faith believes him at his word. Fifth point, genuine faith believes him at his word. Remember what Jesus said. I'm going to keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is a man of his word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. I'm going to fulfill the word of God. I'm going to fulfill my own words. Why? Because that's what he said. He said, Later on, talking about oaths in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's the one that said that. So if he says, I will come and heal him, we can believe him in that promise. We can believe him in that word. Lord ever given you a promise? Has the Lord ever told you that he was going to do something? Maybe he told you he was going to do something and it happened. Maybe he told you he was going to do something and it hasn't happened yet. But Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering. He's not slack concerning his promises. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He will fulfill his word to you. Sometimes it's just a matter of time. See, some of you, many of you have family, some of you are single. Maybe God told you you're going to have a family one day, and you're like, I'm getting to this age, and I don't think it's ever going to happen. Maybe for some of you, he told you he's going to use you in this mighty way in ministry, and you're like, I don't just, there's not opportunities, and I, I want to be used, and I feel like God told me I have this gift or this thing, and he wants to use me, and he's anointed me for this specific purpose, but it's not happening. What's happening, Lord? Sometimes it's just a matter of time. See, my... My God told me that he was going to save my dad. He told me that. He told me through prayer and worship. He said, don't worry about him. I got him. And it'd be like time, I'd have these conversations. It'd be like, dude, my dad's too smart for his own good. So some of these conversations would be like, man, I don't know what to tell you about this. But he did. He fulfilled that. He told me I was going to marry my wife. He gave me a word about that. Married my wife. It happened. He told me we were going to have kids. Hasn't happened yet. Will it happen? I believe it will. Because he said it's going to happen. There's so many things that God tells us, but we have to trust him at his word. Why? We can trust his word because we can trust his character. He's the one that said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
is going to fulfill everything that he's said yes to because that's who he is. He's a promise keeper. That's part of God's character. He said he's going to heal this servant and we are going to see him do exactly that. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. It says, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Listen to what the centurion said. He said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you come under the same roof as me. Well, traditionally, uh, many Jews believed that um, Gentiles weren't worthy to come under the same roof as them. So the centurion, familiar with the Jewish culture, he's like, yeah, I know I'm not worthy to be in the same house as you. This is interesting. He's a centurion. He could demand Jesus to do just about anything, but he doesn't. He operates in humility. This is the sixth point. Genuine faith is humble. Genuine faith is humble. Genuine faith recognizes that we don't belong under the same roof as Jesus. We don't. Genuine faith is humble. That's what we see with this centurion. He recognizes, I don't belong under the same roof as you. We have to recognize our unworthiness before he will deem us worthy. We see this with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I dwell with the people of unclean lips. I should be dead in this moment in your presence, God. That's where Isaiah, Isaiah, you look at Isaiah, Isaiah, he's a righteous guy. Perhaps has more messianic prophecies than anyone else in the Bible. Isaiah's the real deal. And he recognizes in the presence of God under the same roof, I don't, be, I don't believe that I should be anywhere near you. I, I shouldn't be able to come into contact with your holiness. I'm undone. I'm unclean. This was his response to God's holiness. This was his response to being under the same roof, if you will, with God. See, so often as children of God, there's this entitlement that can set in. Where you'd be like, dude, I'm a child of God. Like, my daddy, he created the universe. He can do anything. That's who my father is. And sometimes we can take that and we can let that entitlement um, reside in our hearts and and think we deserve more than we really do and so often we have to come to that place where we constantly remind ourselves of what we truly deserve so romans chapter 6 verse 23 for the wages of sin is death what we really deserve hell and death that's what we deserve we don't belong under the same roof as jesus but jesus is so good he's so loving he's so gracious And he says, but I want you under the same roof as me. I want to be in the same place as you. Yes, this is what you deserve, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'll come under the same roof as you because I love you. It's only by grace that he will come under the same roof as us. Our response to Jesus' willingness to come under our roof should always be humility. Just as we see this servant, but it's cool. Jesus doesn't even have to come under the same roof because of the power of his words. Look what he says. The centurion says, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. The centurion, he recognizes the power 
of Jesus' words. He's craving the word, Jesus, just speak. And I don't know if you heard a portion of the Sermon on the Mount or something, if he was in that group of people that were astonished, I'm not sure. But somehow he knew some way that there was power in Jesus' words and he craved it. Jesus, just speak a word. Do you crave the word like that? Jesus, just speak. Just speak a word. I want to hear you speak. Do you crave the word like that? Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, he says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah craved the word. The centurion craved the word. Do we crave the word like that? Do we crave the word like we crave food? Because that's the parallel. That's the example and illustration that we get in Scripture. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Luke chapter 4. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth. Do we crave the word like that? Think about how much time you spend eating in a day. How many meals in a day? Three. And how much time do you take eating those meals? 30 minutes, an hour. How much time do you spend in the Word every day? Think about that. If we just spend as much time in the Word as we did eating, things could be a little different. They might be. But that's what we should do. That should be our reasonable response. If we believe Jesus' words, if we believe, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who hunger for the word, if we believe those things, then our response should be to be feeding off the word constantly. Why? Well, we're not going to be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount until we see God's word as an essential element for survival. We need it to survive in this world in the way that Jesus intended us to survive. Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Wow. Jesus marveled. See, the centurion's understanding of Jesus' authority and the authority behind his words made Jesus marvel. The centurion recognized just by saying a word, I know that there's so much power, there's so much authority in your words, when you say it, it's going to happen. It's gonna, there's so much authority behind your word. Jesus marveled. You would think it would take a lot to marvel the one that created the universe. Right? No, not a lot. You know what marvels Jesus? When we recognize the authority of his word and we submit to it. That marvels Jesus. That's the seventh point. Genuine faith submits to authority. Genuine faith submits to authority. We'll marvel Jesus when we submit to the authority of of his word. We see this centurion, this soldier, respond to Jesus' words, respond to the authority of his words, to recognize the authority of his words. Oh, that got loud. We see Paul give us this illustration in 2 Timothy chapter 2 of what our faith ought to look like. 
And he uses the example of a soldier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You're a good soldier. We're called to be good soldiers. I'm called to be a good soldier. You're called to be a good soldier. What do good soldiers do? They submit to the authority of the one that enlisted them. What pleases? It says, look at what it says here. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Well, who enlisted you? Jesus, right? What pleases him? What pleases God? Faith. Faith pleases God. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? Because faith pleases him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus, he's looking for faith because faith pleases him. But he's looking for a faith that looks like obedience and submission to the authority of his word. To recognize, not just hear it, yeah, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but to recognize the power and the authority in his words. That's what the centurion did. He recognized Jesus' authority and the authority behind his word. But see, it also takes faith to submit to God's word because it doesn't always make sense to us. Think about what Jesus just talked about, even in these last few chapters. The whole love your enemy thing, that one still so hard for me to read. Endure hardship as a good soldier, what we just read? Whew, hardship, not fun to endure. What about this one in Colossians? Long suffer with joy. Takes faith. Yeah, because that doesn't make sense to me. When I'm suffering, joy's not usually the first thing that comes to my mind. I usually have to like take a long time of prayer and get into the Word and like remind myself, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to have joy right now. Why don't I have joy? Am I not abiding in the Lord? All right, I'm abiding in the Lord. Okay, now I have joy. This is weird. How do I have joy and all these things are happening? Supernatural thing. Oh, it took faith. I believe him at his word and now I'm experiencing this thing. Now I have joy through the trial and it doesn't make any sense. Now I have hope in a hopeless situation. Now I'm bearing fruit where there's a hard thing in front of me. There's a hard trial. There's a hardship. It takes faith to submit to God's word. But this is the reality of a soldier. A soldier's submission is not contingent upon his understanding. Think about if we, like, we just had Memorial Day, got military men and women dying for the country. You think every single one of them understood exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it? Think about if the soldiers in the Army and the Marines and the Navy and the Air Force, if they only submitted to the authority that was placed in their life when they understood everything. Probably wouldn't have that many soldiers. There'd be people getting kicked off the um, military left and right, right? But that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to submit regardless of our understanding. So often Jesus will ask us to do things that we don't understand, but genuine faith submits to authority regardless of understanding. This is where we'll close, verse 11. 
to 13. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. See, First off, Jesus says many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. What's he saying? There's going to be Gentiles in heaven. Okay? And look what else he says. And I say, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. What's he saying there? There's going to be Jews that are in hell. There's going to be Jews and Gentiles that are in heaven, and there's going to be Jews and Gentiles that are in hell. There's going to be sons of the kingdom. You thought you were a son of the kingdom. Why? Because you were of the seed of Abraham? But were you really of the seed of Abraham? Because what's the seed of Abraham? It's Galatians chapter 3. The seed of Abraham is Christ. It's one seed, singular, not seeds. It's not just because I was of the lineage of Abraham, I have the right to the kingdom. That's what they believed. But you look at, back at the scriptures, and Paul points to it in Galatians chapter 3. No, that's a singular seed. He was speaking of the Christ. Whoever believes in him will inherit eternal life. Whoever believes in him will inherit the kingdom of God. It's believing in the seed, singular seed, that gets us to the kingdom. But that belief, that belief should look like something. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe. They're not saved? Nope. Why? It's an intellectual belief. It's not a belief that affects their behavior. Jesus is looking for a specific type of belief. A, a genuine belief is going to affect our behavior. If I believe the Sermon on the Mount, then that's going to affect the way I live my life. Not that we're going to always live up to it. Not that we're not going to make mistakes. Not that we're going to need mercy every morning. Grace every day, but that belief should affect my behavior. It can't just be an intellectual thing. It has to be an experiential thing. It has to look like something. This is the eighth and final point. Genuine faith is observable. Genuine faith is observable. If I believe Jesus is who he says he is, and I say that he is Lord, then the evidence of that belief is going to be measured by the genuineness of my faith. I don't want to be a person that just says what Jesus says and understands what he says. I want to be a person that lives how Jesus lived. If he's the way, I want to follow his way. He's the way to life. He's the way to abundance of life here on this earth. That way is narrow, that way is difficult, that way is hard. That way doesn't always make sense. But it's the only way. I hope you share that same heart. But this is also the reality. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we can say, after reading many of those 
lines. My right hand caused me to sin, cut it off. My eye, pluck it out. There's no way I could do these things. There's no way I could live up to the Sermon on the Mount. And there's truth to that. But he's not asking us to do it alone. He's asking us to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We'll only be able to do what Jesus did to live the way he lived by depending on the Helper. He's there to help us. He's there to help us live this out. When we're not living it out, maybe we're not depending on the Helper. He's there to help us. We need help. Start from that place of dependence. So Jesus shows us um, what it means to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Sermon on the Mount works. And that's kind of a two-part meaning. The Sermon on the Mount, if I believe the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to put that to work. But the Sermon on the Mount, it actually works. Like when we do it, it works. It changes our lives. It inspires others to to follow the Lord. It, It does so many different things, but we have to put it to practice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for the way um, that you lived, God, that you didn't just have a bunch of sayings, not just a bunch of teachings, Lord, but we can see the way you lived out, the things that you taught. God, that gives, um, gives us so much hope Lord, we know the way is difficult, it's narrow, it's impossible. But the things that are impossible to man are possible with you, Lord. So I pray for a fresh anointing, a fresh filling for everyone in this room. God, that we would be people that depend on your spirit, recognizing that we can't do anything without you. Not a workout, not a prayer, nothing, Lord. So I pray Jesus, that you would empower us to live the way that you live, to live out what you taught. In Jesus' name.